This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Well, we made it through our uh, last long scripture reading until we're in the Gospel of Luke, <laughs> which is next. Well, I guess we'll have a break for Advent, so we'll just be doing some songs. But So this morning, I uh, just want to say this is our, is our last sermon in this section of Isaiah. We're kind of going to be headed towards Advent and kind of being in the Gospel of Luke for that coming up next. Um, but this, was, this is kind of a wrapping up of, of this section that we've called The Lord Waits. That's kind of been the underlying theme of this section we've been in. And so I kind of want to remind us of that by turning to chapter 30. In verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. That's kind of the underlying theme that we've been in through this, this past series. And, you know, at first I think Isaiah can seem like a book that is just kind of out to spell doom and gloom. <laughs> Um, which is, I mean, kind of fair because there's a lot of that. <laughs> if you don't remember the last, I think our last section was called what, like his judgments, his judgments and precepts. Um, yeah, there's been kind of like an overall theme of God not being super happy with his people. But there's also a greater underlying purpose to that. And I think that's what this verse and kind of what this section is, is saying to us is that, yes, God wants us to know his judgments, but he also wants us to know that he's gracious that he waits to be gracious to us. See, it's Isaiah's intent in everything that he writes to show us the character of God. We should take God seriously and that he is holy, that he has the right to judge, of course. But I think also, I hope that this section has shown us that, that God takes seriously the ways that he is determined to show his grace to us. And it's something we should grasp. Isaiah shows us a lot about human folly, but the thread that holds his book together, really, I mean, really the whole Bible together, is God's character. It's his word given to us to show us who he is and what he's doing. So this morning, just to kind of wrap up this series, wrap up, or this section of the series, we're going to look at Hezekiah's life again. And it's kind of, and this, not only is this wrapping up this section of the series, it's kind of wrapping up a portion uh, of a narrative that kind of has broken away from the, the prophecy that we've been in so far. But yeah, so it's kind of like a double, <laughs> getting a double dose of endings today. And this morning, here's kind of what we're looking at. You know, last week in the sermon I preached, we kind of looked at Hezekiah as an example. Like, this is someone who should emulate the way that we pray I would hope that you realize as much as I did just by reading this and hearing this that it's kind of the opposite this morning. <laughs> this is a dude that we should not emulate in the way that he handles this situation. And that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, so we kind of went from like a, like a hero to a cautionary tale in like a chapter. So here's kind of how we're breaking up the story today. I guess I didn't put it on the side, but, but we're going to first look at his request, his prayer, and then ultimately his failure. And it's kind of how we're breaking up the passage. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray before we jump into, into that narrative. Jesus, I want to just thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for, um, 
the hope of your gospel, that you have given us your word. Jesus, you've given us a way for us to know you, to know what you are like and what you're not like, and that you've given us yeah, stories of your people that show us um, kind of ourselves in a mirror, God, that we are back and forth, that at that times we are faithful, at times we trust you, and then there are times where we don't, and we make a huge mess of things. <laughs> and that's why we're thankful for you, Jesus, um, that you are the faithful one. And so I just pray this morning as we, as we look at this, this story, as we end this, this section of, of seeing how gracious you are to us, God, that that would, that would leave an impact on our faith this morning. So, God, we trust you with this, with this word in this moment. And so you pray. Amen. So, yeah, so let me just give a brief summary of kind of what has led up to this, this story. So, essentially, we look back. Hezekiah has kind of turned away from his father's way. The kings of Judah and Israel, who, you know, split up, even that was a mistake, splitting up into those two nations, They've kind of been making a mess of God's law. Hezekiah comes around, and he has a conviction that he wants to reform that. He wants to, to bring worship in the temple and, and focus on the law back to his people. And part of that is that he stops um, kind of catering to the other nations, catering to Egypt and catering to Assyria. And then, well, Assyria is not super happy with that and decides that they're going to conquer them. And so he's, the Assyria, Assyrian king sets his sights on Judah and Jerusalem. And then kind of the sermon that a couple sermons ago, Aaron talked about um, the Rabshakeh, the messenger that they came from Assyria, and he starts smack-talking God, basically. And he's like, don't believe your king. Like, your God has no power to save you. And then last week, what we talked about is God absolutely does have the power to save them because he wipes out their entire army <laughs> after Hezekiah pleads with God to, to defend his own name, essentially. And that's kind of where we've been at. And so we come here, and this is kind of, this is around the time where the Assyrian, that happened to the Assyrian army, and Assyria is still a presence, and it's still around, like the nation didn't end, um, but the king had gone back. So I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but when the king of Assyria goes back, and there's that kind of portion of time, and then he gets murdered in his own house, the time between when the army, the, when God destroyed the army and he died was actually, scholars think, like 20 years. So, I mean, as a kind of a side note, it's like interesting that, you know, I, Hezekiah had to wait 20 years to know if God was going to like stay true to his word and end the king. Um, but that's kind of, this is kind of the time period that we're in right now. It's kind of in that chunk of time. So the, the passage kind of starts off with, with Hezekiah learning that he's going to die. And that's kind of where we're at. And, you know, I want to point out, I think it's kind of funny that he is so dismayed um, that he, like, gets his news, not because, like, any of us wouldn't be dismayed <laughs> if we got news that we were going to die, but it's like, how many of us get a warning? <laughs> like, a warning from God, like, hey, just giving you a heads up, like, you're going to die soon. Like, get your house in order. Like, I think if any of us had that, like, it would be sad, obviously, to be like, oh, like, hey, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> but he's like, he's like, wait, what? Like, just give me more time. <laughs> he's like, not satisfied with that. That's, I found that was interesting. But, you know, despite that, God goes ahead and he gives him his request. And this is what he says. 
uh, in verse, starting verse 5, he says, Go and say to Hezekiah, this is what he says to Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears. Behold, I'll add 15 years to your life. I'll deliver you in the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend his city. So he's saying, hey, I am making good on my promise. The, the city is still defended. So this will be a sign to you from the Lord, and that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial ten steps from which it declined. I just want to say, I honestly have no idea what is going on there with the sundial turning back. I don't know if that's like kind of a poetic thing, saying like he's granting him life because he was like different from his father Ahaz, or I mean, God like literally just turned back the sun. If that is the case, which I mean, probably likely the case, it's not necessarily unprecedented because he like kind of did that and back in Joshua when. Uh, they're, fight, they're fighting a battle and God like stops the sun in its place like he pauses time so like they can continue fighting like in the daylight so it's not unprecedented um, but I'm not going to pretend that I like know super well how to explain <laughs> what is happening there um, but either way the point is God heard his request and gave him his request to give him more time to live and you know I think it's kind of interesting that that God would do that because as we read in scripture reading like we see what comes from God answering his prayer and so I do want to ask this as we kind of think about that have you ever really wanted something ask God for something and then when he gave it to you it turned out nothing like you thought I guess that again have you ever wanted something and asked God for that thing and it ended up turning out nothing like you thought. I'm going to take a wager and say most of you would say yes. Um, but I want to kind of share something in my life that um, maybe we'll speak to that. So this is like awkward to talk about, but um, yes. So for those of you who don't know, when I came to Denver originally to do an internship with the Mayus and my wife and I had gone to Bible college um, to kind of pursue ministry. And so we came to Emmaus, and kind of my thinking at the time was like, I'm going to do this internship, and then like hopefully I'll get a job, and I will be like a career pastor, which I, like is foreign to some people, and other people are like, oh, yeah, like I've gone to churches where like that's a thing. Um, and that was kind of my intent, and that was kind of my prayer, what I thought God wanted to do with my life was like pursue career ministry, which is like, like, saying that out loud, like, feels gross, but <laughs> it's, like, the phrase people use. Um, yeah, so, um, long story short, that did not happen for a very long time. And I wouldn't even say right now that, like, my end goal is, like, to pursue career ministry. Um, don't hear me saying that. But, yeah, it was, it was a thing that I prayed for. I, and, like, honestly thought, I was, like, God, I thought this is what you wanted for me. You know, I'm, I'm working in coffee full-time now. Um, and just kind of waiting on God to answer a prayer that I, I had or the thing that I thought I wanted. Um, and, you know, the kind of the ironic thing is that, and so if you don't know, which I think most of you do, I do work for the church. <laughs> I'm full-time at the church. Um, but I think most of you also know that the circumstances surrounding that were not super great. <laughs> and I think it's just, when I, when I think back to that time, and honestly even in the moment, 
I think I had a lot of pause. I was like, God, this is something that I thought I wanted. I'm actually pretty content with where you have me now. Um, the timing on this like seems strange. Like, why didn't I, you like answer that before? <laughs> you know, like when I actually wanted, thought I wanted it. Or, and I think the point is um, that oftentimes we ask, we ask God for things um, that we don't have the wisdom um, to see where the right answer actually is. And that oftentimes we, we want, or think we want things, um, and God has a different plan. Or when he gives you that thing, it turns out very differently than you thought it would. Um, you know, I think at the time it was like, God, like I wanted this, but like not with these circumstances. Like, why? <laughs> you know, like why now? Um, yeah, so I, I share that story to say this. I, I think we should take an inventory today. See, when, when have any of us ever asked for anything outside of the request of asking for more of God? I think when we, when we ask outside of that request, when has it ever turned out how we thought? Or it ended up being what we needed? I think what we're, we're learning today from the story and kind of what I want to keep coming back to this morning is that if we're going to ask God for anything, whether like the career that you want or the family that you want or, you know, X, Y, or Z, whatever it is you're seeking, if we're going to ask God for anything, we should ask for more of him. Amen. Ask for more of him because God is the wise one. He's the one who knows what we need. He's the one who knows how things are going to turn out. He's the one thing in our life that's actually constant. And I would say even predictable. God has given us his word as a sense that we know what to expect from him. I think when God does something that we don't expect is because we don't understand him. <laughs> Not because God is like juking us. Like he's told us who he is. He's shown us that in his word. We just want him to be something that he's not sometimes in our prayers. Uh, when I look back at how much I wanted that vocational ministry and I compare it against who God is and what he said in his word, it's kind of like a face palm. I'm like a little bit embarrassed <laughs> to, that, I wanted something, that I wanted something other than him so badly. Yeah. That's kind of what Isaiah's request is revealing. is revealing his true heart. And so does his, his prayer that comes up next. And so let's look at that. He says, all these things about, you know, essentially, I mean, I'm not going to go into all of it, but he's basically like lamenting and saying like how much it sucks that he's going to die and like how unfair it is. Um, he spends a lot of verses essentially saying that. Um, but to, a little bit to his credit, in verse 11, he says, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. He's kind of saying, and then like a little bit of a, a redeemable thing is, he's like, I, you know, I will miss fellowship that I have with the Lord and with my fellow man on this side of life. 
which, you know, kind of ironically compared to the rest of his prayer, kind of proves the point that we should actually be more concerned with requesting more of God. <laughs> he, like, he's kind of double-minded and, you know, he's like lamenting dying, but, he, but then he's saying like, what I enjoy about life is, is God's presence. It's like, doesn't dying, if you believe in God, like give you more of his presence? <laughs> it's like, it's just kind of like an interesting, ironic thing. But I, he's kind of, yeah, proving the point that like, that is what we should be concerned about. Because it, you know, even if he's, he's saying it and like not saying it, that is what he's concerned about. And then there's kind of another high note in verse 20. He says, the Lord will save me. And we will play my music on string instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. And I think what Hezekiah is saying there is that the appropriate response to God preserving his life is to worship him with it. And that's a great conclusion. Like, if the story stopped there, Hezekiah would be doing pretty good. <laughs> but that's not where the story stops, which is kind of sad, because he like goes ahead and just like ruins ruins that sentiment in the, literally the next verse. He says, Isaiah said to him, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that you may recover. And Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that shall go up to the house of the Lord? Like, dude, God literally turned back time for you. <laughs> he like performed like a miracle. He's like, ah, but what's, what's this, like when should I like, when do I know that I should like go worship him. I mean, he, he even, like, gives Isaiah, like, a physical ailment to help, like, relieve his suffering, to give him comfort. And he's like, okay, but where's my guarantee again that, like, I'm going to live 15 years? <clears throat> and I think that it's revealing of his heart. It's a revealing of, like, where his actual heart is in that prayer. Does he actually trust God? And I think there's kind of a lesson in there for us. It isn't just about having the right requests. Like we could pray that prayer to ask for more of God, to ask for more of his presence, to ask for more of, of uniting with Christ. But it doesn't do us any good to ask for that if we don't actually trust him. If we don't trust that, the, that those things that we're asking for or what we need, if they're actually good. Like, if we're, if we're praying those prayers, saying, like, okay, like, Ben said we should ask for more of God, I'm going to ask for more of God, um, but that doesn't have an effect on your heart, that's kind of just empty words. It's, it's really just religion. It's not gospel. And it's kind of what we see from Hezekiah. He says all these things, he's praying this prayer, um, you know, kind of the, like, dramatic... Jewish lamenty sense. And then he ends with like, you know, I'm going to worship God. Those are just words. He's, he literally contradicts himself and he's like, but where's my sign? Like, I want to do these things. I like, want to have this feeling for you, God. But I just need to be like really certain <laughs> that you're going to extend my life, that you're going to answer my prayer. It's super revealing. And Jesus kind of gives, he gives the same warning. In Matthew 12, uh, the Pharisees uh, one of the many occasions they do this, they approach Jesus and they ask him for a sign. 
and they're just kind of goading him. They're, I mean, they're basically saying, like, show us that you're worth believing. Like, show us that you actually, like, have any power. Even though Jesus had already been performing miracles and, like, teaching and doing all these things. And Jesus responds, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jesus kind of goes on to say, you know, Jonah was sent to Nineveh, who had no exposure to God's people at all before then. And they all respond immediately by like giving their lives to God, like confessing him as Lord. And then he also says, you know, he says that and then he says, I will do more than Jonah. Like, I will save more. I'm more capable of saving, like, people further from me than even Jonah. Like, God's going to use me for something greater. And he kind of also alludes to Solomon. He says, like, Solomon was wise. You guys really look up to him for what he did. And he's like, I'm greater than he. He's like, I'm wisdom incarnate. Yeah, you asked me for a sign. It's like, the sign is me. I've been doing all these scenes. I've been showing you how the kingdom is breaking in, what God wants for his kingdom. I've been performing miracles to show you that I am the son of God. And yet you ask for a sign. You want more. He's like, I'm it. And that's kind of what Hezekiah's posture is. Like God like defies the laws of physics that he wrote <laughs> to show Hezekiah that he's like, on his side, that he's, that he's with him. And he's like, but where's the sign? He shows his cards. Hezekiah's faith compared to what we looked at last week, it's become weak. And his hope, where his hope is, where his faith is, if we're looking at this, it seems like it's placed more in his request than it is in the God that he's praying to. And I think we should look at that and be careful that when we pray that our faith, our hope isn't wrapped up in the requests, the things that we're asking for more than the God who answers them. And we see what happens. We see his failure because that's where his hope lies as a result in the next chapter. So what happens next is the king of Babylon sends an an envoy to to inquire about Hezekiah, and this is what he does when they get there. In 39 verse 2, he says, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. Literally, when I read this for like the first time for my sermon prep, I said this out loud when I read that. What a dummy. <laughs> like, I literally said that out loud. What a dummy. Like, how could you not, like, know what is going on there? <laughs> like, oh, this, like, super, like, wealthy kingdom that, like, really doesn't care much about Judah at all just shows up like, hey, like, how are you doing? We heard you were sick. Can you show us, like, all your resources and spoils? They're like, we wouldn't be interested in uh, at all as, like, a nation who conquers other nations for a living. Hezekiah's like, yeah, like, let me give you the tour, like an episode of Cribs or something. Like, what is happening? so obvious and there's kind of like this scary bit of information that's in 2nd Chronicles of this account that's not in here 
uh, it says this in Second Chronicles 32. It says, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Is that not kind of scary? God left him to himself to test what was in his heart. God knew Hezekiah's heart was off. He knew that when he granted him his request for a longer life, that his heart was off. God knew that he was going to be a dummy. Look what happens. Isaiah asks him, like, hey, what's going on? Like, who are these guys? What are they doing here? And Hezekiah, kind of with a puffed up chest, super proud of himself, which is ironic. He's like, yeah, I show them everything. Like, they're from Babylon. Like, I show them all my baller stuff. (laughs) So then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, verse 5, he says, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's a total disaster. Where was Hezekiah, the Hezekiah that had like a shred of humility to see through the Babylonians' scheme? I think the answer is that his judgment was obviously clouded. His judgment was clouded with pride. You guys remember the movie The Dark Knight? Batman? It's like the last good superhero movie. <laughs> that's that's maybe a little dramatic. <laughs> phase four, Marvel Phase Four has been a bit of a dud. I mean, we can all agree with that. Um, but there's a scene where Harvey Dent, who like ends up becoming Two Face, they're at this gala and he's talking to Bruce Banner, and they're talking about Batman, and he says, "Either he says you either die a hero." Are you live long enough to see yourself become the villain? Which is obviously foreshadowing because, like, Harvey Dent was supposed to die and he, like, gets saved and he becomes a villain. And I think that, like, the harsh reality is, like, when I look at this story, I'd say, like, I kind of, God, I kind of feel like you should have denied his request. Like, this was a total disaster. Like, it would be better, like, Ray Orland, who is, like, commentator, is, like, one of the commentators uh, looked at for this, he literally is, like, it would have been better for Hezekiah to have died in chapter 38. He's just, like, straight up is, like, savage. It's, like, God should have offed him. Like that, like, with our, like, finite wisdom, that's what we say. But uh, there's, there's a pastor that he quoted named W.S. Uh, plumber that says this if even our joys and hopes make us heedless we are better without them if we have so conceived of the gospel as to judge that its fullness and promises render watchfulness unnecessary we quite mistake its true nature 
if let me read that. If we have conceived of the gospel as to judge that its fullness and promises render watchfulness unnecessary, we quite mistake its true nature. If we are going to ask for anything, we should ask for more of God. If we fool ourselves into believing that a measure of faith in one moment guarantees that in the next, then we are being foolish. We're not being watchful. You can ask Aaron. His favorite book is Keeping the Heart. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. It's because when we, we don't keep our hearts, when we aren't constantly reminding ourselves, as Tim was talking about this morning, that, that we need to reflect and, and consider where our hearts are actually at moment to moment, then our stories are going to look like this story. <laughs> we have a measure in faith in one moment, and then we use the favor of God. His, we use God's blessing meant for good as means to be foolish. I think Hezekiah's heart in this was kind of like, oh, God extended my life. Like, I'm invincible. Like, God has favor. Like, I can do what I want. Like, I can, I can show Babylon, like, all the stuff I have because, like, God's on my side and there's nothing they can do about it. God hadn't said anything about Babylon. He said, I will defend you from Assyria. Like, I've given you that promise. That wasn't licensed to be a fool with other nations, but that's what Hezekiah used it for. And the story, this is just straight up sad. The story ends with Hezekiah responding to his people's captivity, his own family, like future generations. He's like, oh, well, this is good news because it's not going to happen to me. Like, how audacious to say that. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's cringeworthy. Two chapters ago, he was begging God to defend his own name. And now he's concerned with his own, his comfort. And I think we need to be watchful because we aren't any different. You know, Plummer says we mistake the gospel's true nature. I think one of the intentions of the gospel is, is to refine us, is that we could, we could walk in, in sanctification, which is an ongoing thing. Like, God, Jesus Christ's atonement is not the same as his sanctifying work of the Spirit. We have a, a Christian responsibility to be keeping our heart, to be watchful of where sin continues to creep in. You know, where Hezekiah was our example of prayer last week, Hezekiah is now our cautionary tale of what happens when you don't keep your heart. Because we aren't constant the way God is constant with our character. If that like isn't obvious, I hope that this story helps shed some light on that. And the truth is, Hezekiah alone didn't seal his people's fate. We see in, in 2 Kings in this account, in 2 Chronicles, the same account, that Literally, the next king in line after Hezekiah dies 
He do- literally undoes everything that he worked for. Like the idols that he tore down, he, like his son just builds them back up. And just totally, whatever work had been done at all to reform Israel was wiped out immediately by the next king. See, God saved them from Assyria. But God's people didn't allow his faithfulness to be written on their hearts. And so the product of that is that their hearts turned right back to the powerless things of the world. And what we see in God's judgment that Isaiah shares is that God judges them for it. You know, James says this to the church in James chapter 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But he also says, later he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James is reminding the church, if you ask for more of God, he will give you more because that's what he wants. If you're wondering where all the good news is in all this, because this is kind of a daunting topic, I think it's this, that the Lord is still waiting to be gracious to us. It didn't end in Isaiah's time. He desires, his desire is to draw near to his people. You know, the next section of Isaiah proves this. I'm going to jump to this because by the time we're back in Isaiah, you'll forget any, this whole sermon probably. But in, verse, in chapter 40, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, so that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, everything God has been doing, whether it's his uh, answering Hezekiah's request to extend his life, and as a result, his judgment for his foolishness and his people's lack to stay faithful to him despite everything that Hezekiah tried to do to lead them to the right way. All of that has been pointing us to Jesus. The glory of the Lord revealed. The very word of the Lord And this is what Isaiah is showing us, that even when God's people screw up again and again, he's patiently waiting for his glory to be revealed in his perfect son, Jesus. God loves to be gracious to us so much. And this is what we're going to spend time reflecting on the next four weeks of Advent that we do every year 
And it's why we do it every year, because we need to be reminded of this over and over. It's like God is so determined to be gracious to us that he came down to us. His very word of grace and truth wrapped up in flesh and blood. God is so determined to be gracious to us. Even when people could say of us, what a dummy. (laughs) Like we do of Hezekiah. That he knew the only way for us to be able to draw near to him, to actually be able to do that, was was for him to draw near to us first. To come to us. Not because we first loved him, but he first loved us. If we should ask God for anything, we should ask for more of him, for more of Jesus, to see more clearly how to walk in the way of his son, whose faith never faltered, even as he faced his death. God told Jesus he was going to die. Jesus knew that. (laughs) A long time before Hezekiah knew that he was going to (laughs) die. And yet he faced it. It was his joy to face death. Jesus asked for the cup to be passed, but then ultimately he said, your will be done. Jesus is our perfect example of how we can resist the temptation of this world, how we can be watchful of our hearts, how we ought to draw near to the living God. And don't hear me say that we shouldn't ask God for anything other than more of him. Like if we just prayed like those exact words, like God just give me more of you. I mean, obviously God can do something with that. (laughs) But I think what I'm trying to say is we should be mindful of our requests and our heart behind them. what's What's the underlying desire of our requests? Is it to experience more of God? Or is it something else? Consider that things that we ask for might actually lead us, be leading us away from God rather than a deeper abiding in him. So let me challenge us with this. Maybe journal your prayers this week. I need this for myself because I'm horrible at journaling. (laughs) Journal your prayers and then look back at them at the end of the week and then ask, what does the content of those prayers reveal about your heart? What are the things that you're asking God for? And how do those things glorify him? It's not saying we shouldn't necessarily not ask God for a good job or for provision. You know, part of the Lord's prayer is daily bread. But that's not where it starts. Where does the Lord's prayer start? Anyone know? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. If our requests don't come from that place, if that's not our chief concern, then we're going to ask God for things that he's not going to give us because they would lead us away from him. And God doesn't want us to be far from him. He wants us to be near. Truth is that God doesn't always answer our quests the way we want. That's obvious. But he always gives us the answer we need. If it's not going to draw you closer to him, he's not going to give it to you. Or he's going to give it to you so you screw it up and it makes you draw closer to him. Like that's what he wants. If giving me vocational ministry meant that I all of a sudden realized how like incapable I am of it, (laughs) of doing it, then I'm going to be on my knees in front of him a lot more asking for his help than if I wasn't. He doesn't always answer requests the way we want, but he always gives us the answer we need. The kind of uncomfortable, amazing truth about the story is that, as I said, God knew the answer to Hezekiah's request would lead to the exile of his people and the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's out of those ashes that people like Daniel, the prophet, rose up. And uh, Meshach... Remshach, Bendigo, that's here. People, like the remnant, like we talked about last week, people that, that in the face of death would choose God, would choose his law. And set an example again for his people. Out of that answer to Hezekiah's prayer and even in destruction of Jerusalem came their return back to Judah, came that's where we get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from. People who helped rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, but also love of God's word and the people. And then, like we said, of course, ultimately paved the way for a better king than Hezekiah, a more capable king than Jesus. So if you're going to ask for anything ask for more of him for his presence for his character for your character to be more like his you might be surprised what God does 